Welcome to today's episode of the CyberWork with InfoSec podcast. For 12 days in November, CyberWork is premiering a new episode every single day. In these dozen episodes, we'll discuss hiring best practices, career strategies, team development, and the importance of storytelling in cybersecurity. Today's episode is titled Security Awareness, Behavior, and Culture, Ask Us Anything, and it happened at this year's InfoSec Inspire Conference back in September. Keynote speaker Jeanon Budge, Principal Security and Risk Analyst at Forrester, and Bruce Hallis of the Rethinking the Human Factor podcast, took questions from our virtual audience, including where to focus your time and budget in educating your staff at times other than Security Awareness Month, picking employees to be security champions, and maturing your organization's security culture. We hope you enjoy this 30-minute Ask Us Anything between Jeanon and Bruce, along with moderator Kristen Zurovich. If you want to learn cybersecurity or move up the ladder in your career, we're giving all CyberWork listeners a free month of access to hundreds of courses and hands-on cyber ranges with InfoSec Skills. InfoSec Skills is aligned to the work roles, knowledge, and skill statements in the NICE workforce framework and can help you at any stage of your career. Be sure to use the code CYBERWORK when signing up. More details can be found in the description for this episode. Catch new episodes of CyberWork every Monday at 1 p.m. Central Time on our YouTube channel for video or on audio wherever you like to get your podcasts. And now, let's start the show. We'll just get get started and jump right in. Um, this is a question uh, that actually came in during your keynote, Janan. This is from Emmanuel, and he's asking... Uh, one of my team's priorities for the next year and beyond is maturing our organization's security culture. There's been a lot of discussion about how to measure culture and changes to it. What are you seeing as the strongest indicators of culture change? And how do organizations like mine report progress on culture to, for example, an executive team? Okay. Uh, first of all, Emmanuel, congratulations for getting to a point where you are considering measuring your culture. I think that's a that's such a significant point to get to in an organization to measure the security culture. Um, I know I've just listened to Bruce's amazing session and I know he had uh, some perspectives on definitions of culture and I'm sure Bruce, you'll be able to share with us uh, definitions as well as measurements. From my perspective, I want to uh, talk about some of the more practical elements of measuring the culture and some of the trends that I'm seeing. I'm definitely seeing a lot of trends in cultural assessments on the market. Uh, these are tools uh, that are currently being deployed to measure culture. There are tools that are being measured, uh, that are being used to measure behavior and all really exciting. Again, I'm thrilled to see us move away from that um, you know, measuring how many people have completed their security awareness training course or how many people liked it. Like what, what is that actually giving us? I'm not, you know, wasn't really quite sure, but I think there's been an evolution. So really happy to see that we're starting to measure behavior. But again, if I move on to, and I just want to share a personal example uh, and it was from a particular organization and a particular transformation that I went to conduct at that particular organization. And I remember when I first walked through the door, this wasn't just a cultural project, it was the entire cybersecurity program. And I remember going in and no one wanted to know about security. 
no one. We would have meetings and I would walk into a room and people would literally either laugh and they'll go, ha ha, cyber, cyber, what is this thing? Or, you know, they'll start making um, gun gestures or, you know, they just thought the whole thing was hilarious. Uh, as we started building our brand, building the culture, socializing with stakeholders, it was so interesting how much it changed. And it got to a point after one, one and a half years where I'd walk into a meeting room and people would have a cyber safety moment. And I loved that. It was such an intangible thing. It was certainly something that we never intended to measure. But to me, it was such a strong indicator of what a cultural journey that we had all been on on this subject of cybersecurity. You know, and some other ways, you know, if you do want to get specific about this, I think one way you can see if you've changed the dial, you can have a look at things such as how often is your CISO being invited to present at board meetings? How often is this security team being engaged? Um, how engaged is your organization with you about the topic of security? For me, without getting into um, definitional topics, I just think some of these less tangible things are so telling of how far you've come in a year's time. I know it's challenging because I know that boards and executives, you know, they challenge you and they see other organizations saying how many phishing attempts you've blocked, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So you do have to give them whatever it is that's on their mind and demonstrate that, but also just keep on thinking the bigger picture and aim high on that one. Oh, that's fantastic. Bruce, how about from the research that you've conducted, what are, are you seeing as some of the, the trends there in not only defining culture and determining culture, but how are people going about, I guess, tracking their progress in that change on the yeah. cultural spectrum? I think it's really interesting. Uh, Emmanuel's question uh, was about, um, he was on this path of uh, sort of measuring the progress in terms of the maturity of security culture. And, um, you know, when people talk about measuring maturity, that suggests that they've already defined where the end goal is. So how are we maturing towards our goal? It's either they have a, a goal or they're working to somebody else's goal. Now, I think this is a really interesting point because in no court of law is using somebody else's definition of culture, awareness or behavior an excuse. As, a, as somebody who trained in law, I'll tell you this, that when things go wrong, the court's not looking for you to say, well, we did what the others did. That's that's not defendable. Actually, what is defendable is, ah, well, when you say to us, culture, um, this is what we as an organization, how we defined it. And um, not only do you that, once you've defined something, then you can look at aligning everything you do strategy-wise and operational-wise to actually achieving that 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 definition. And I think the interesting point is that when you actually go through that definition, it then throws up the opportunity to look at metrics in a somewhat different way. And definitely a, a different range of metrics to a lot of the metrics that we see being reported day in, day out around security culture. So for me, for Manuel, you know, the real thing is, if you've got an end goal that everybody has signed up to in terms of what you mean by culture, that is the starting point. So your maturity should be measured against that. 
and then you have a plan for it being able to argue okay this is how we were going to achieve that definition and there are way there are there are many many ways that you can do that and i think one of the most interesting pieces of work that i did as part of my research was actually understanding how cultures not organizational cultures but how national cultures how group cultures how other type of cultures how they are formed and influenced and the, and the, the thing that comes out from it very quickly is that there are formal structures for um communicating and embedding culture within all of us and then there are informal structures and you can think about formal structures as being things like for example um when we go to school so the schools that we go to um, are actually embedding in us the values that are considered norms within the society that we're in. So in the US, there are, there are acceptable norms, and those norms are um, they're communicated to people, embedded through uh, to people through school, for example. We don't think of school. We think of school as educating us about how to do maths and how to do geography and history and computer studies. But actually, one of the core parts of any part of school is about embedding the, the, the national values in, in its students. Um, and then we leave school and we go to maybe we go to um, university or a college. And again, it's about the same thing. And then maybe we we go into the IT community or information security. We become a lawyer, a doctor, an accountant. All these are formal structures for basically embedding values in us. And then we have the informal side of things. Now, sorry, just go back. So that formal structure could be, you think about that could be your education and awareness program. <laughs> That's your formal approach to try and embed culture and organizations have been doing this for years and you know, those are all visionary statements that get put upon the walls and the posters and then put into emails into into workshops etc then you have the informal approach to culture now actually that starts the day you're born okay when you're born you're suddenly exposed to mum dad um, and to a number of other people in our early formative years, they're all about actually engaging with the cultural norms which are shared to us through our parents and then our, you know, our grandparents and our, maybe our, our brothers and sisters. As we sort of progress through life, we start moving away from parents and we start associating with groups you know, uh, at school. And actually, a lot of what we're learning at school isn't just through that structured teacher's Head teacher type thing. It's about our friends that we make. It's about the people we don't get on with and understanding about why we don't get on with them. And this is the, the thing for me about culture. We, you look at how cultures are formed, this stru the structured formal path and this unstructured informal path. And actually there's some similarities with the challenges we face and the opportunities we have within organizations around security are stark. They really are really very, very, very clear. And for me, it provides a beautiful blueprint for trying to look at culture from a genuine, authentic way, rather than a this is what you need to do type of approach. And I think, you know, if you if something goes wrong and you want to be able to demonstrate, look, we really did take this seriously. We really set an objective of trying to get a culture where security is truly valued, then having a genuine and authentic approach okay rather than this is what everybody else is doing i think it's a winner i really really believe it's a winner yeah i agree and bruce if i may chime in on that one i love that concept of um informal cultures the things that you don't know that impact you so i'm going to give you an example related to security um some of you might know you might not know it doesn't matter but one of the things that we um 
we created at Forrester uh, back in 2010 was the zero trust model for security. And that's been a, a hit around the world, particularly in North America to start with. I, as you can tell by the accent, I'm in Sydney, um, in the Asia Pacific region. And it's kind of, you know, zero trust for us is crawling into our business security business nomenclature here and I've been conducting research on that this quarter and it's about to be released soon it's very exciting but one of the big challenges to adoption that we've had in region is the word zero in zero trust because mm -hmm. as has been communicated to me by many of uh, the sizes I've spoken to in my region trust is really important in many Asian cultures. They are founded on trust. So when they hear the word zero next to zero trust, it's it kind of puts people off. And for us to ignore this as practitioners, as vendors, as research organizations, it's you know like we're shooting ourselves in the foot. So I think understanding some of those nuances and understanding your own organization's culture. The example I gave you, we talked about cyber safety moments at work. This was a um, an engineering organization. So safety, physical safety was really important to them. So we kind of went in parallel with the safety moments that they had at the beginning of every meetings. So super important. What one of the things that Bruce said is to be aware of the cultural context around you. I mean, I think, and I would expand on that further because I think um, when you understand how behaviours are formed and influenced, I was having a chat with, on, on, on my podcast with a gentleman by the name of Dan Arley, who's a pretty well-known behavioural psychologist, and um, he was talking about the role of values uh, in terms of decision-making, judgments, de decision-making. And we were sort of alluding to the fact that you know, these are values which are often, you know, come through the cultural experience. Um, and a lot of what we talk about, when we talk about security culture. I mean, the first thing is I would genuinely say to people, do you want security culture or do you want security as part of your organizational culture? Because I know we term the phrase security culture and I even use that. But genuinely, do you want to have two separate things within one organization or do you want it just to be this is how things get done? Um, it might be how we label something for the time being, but for me personally, it's all part of the organizational culture. But really important is before anybody came and worked in your organization, most of their cultural values that underpin how they make judgments and decisions within your, own, your organization, they were all developed and embedded pre-employment. Okay, by the time most people are going to college, most of their critical values are already embedded. So it's interesting when we look at organizational culture separately, actually the underlying thing that's going to influence most of the judgments and decisions that are being made are the values that came pre working for your company and probably pre working at all in, in the sense of being employed within, within the industry and the way we think about things. And I think this is, well, you know, this comes back again to what Janan just said there, understanding the cultural context within which people make decisions, not just the cultural context within which you communicate to people. Mm. And the other th and the third part of that triangle is understanding the cultural context that you bring, because cultural lenses mean that you interpret everything 
very, very differently. And Janelle makes a really good point there around, you know, for example, in the Far East, how the, even a word has a significant different connotation to what it would have, for example, in an Anglo-Saxon con uh, country. Sure. Yes. If you don't mind, I'd like to switch gears because there's a question that just came in from Jordan, which I kind of find interesting. And it's um, maybe on the, not on the other end of the spectrum, but further down the spectrum, you know, Emmanuel had asked actually about maturing their organizational or their security culture. And he's kind of on that spectrum right now of making that change. Um, this question that came in from Jordan, they ask about, um, I'll just read what he, he or she said. I'm stepping into the role of managing my company's security awareness training. The program I'm inheriting revolves around annual training for all employees in the fall. I'd like to do more, but it's only me for now. Where do you recommend I focus my time and energy to make an impact beyond just Cyber Security Awareness Month? Oh, so here's something that's a little bit earlier in their Jordan, program. I love thriving. you. That is so <laughs> awesome that you're you're thinking about this. That that's so cool, but also so challenging. It's really challenging, and I think you know one of the um, one of the big things for you is going to be actually selling your ideas, whatever they might be, and convincing people to take them on board. Where What I would personally do is I would approach this like you would any other big um, challenge, uh, challenging project. So the first thing I would recommend is to try your best to conduct a survey or to really, really understand where are your gaps? What, who are the stakeholders that you would like to reach within the organization? And typically to do that, just try and see if you can understand what are some of the, um, what are some of the security aspirations that your security team has, your CISO has actually, what, what do they want to achieve ultimately? Do they want to gain budget? Do they want to gain visibility? Um, are they frustrated by a particular uh, group cyber cyber security behaviors? You know what's going on in your organization. So try and do some kind of a pulse check. If you can do a survey, that would be amazing. That should not be a difficult thing to do. It will be really fun for you. You can engage with the organization. You can raise your own visibility. You can raise your own brand. So it's really cool. So start with that. Then start segmenting your organization into different, um, you know, let's call them threat communities. So the communities in your organization that, you know, again, you want to change the behaviors of, is it the senior stakeholders? Is it the executive assistants? Is it the marketing department? Who is it? Once you start building all of this together, then I think it's a matter to start thinking of, um, you know, timelines and creative ideas and campaigns and things that you can do to target those stakeholders. But I really urge you to start from the business end and what are your objectives? What do you want to achieve? And everything will flow from that. Because if you end up getting your stakeholders, your business, your CISO telling you they need something, you know, who knows, you may be able to even get budget and get funding for some of the some of the things that you want to execute beyond Cyber Awareness Month. And I agree, we, we need to just move away from once-off annual training or Cyber Awareness Month, really important things. So not move away from them, but extend them 
with other things. And there are so many, so many cool things out there on the market uh, that you can either purchase or that you can create yourself and get really creative. Um, the other thing that I want to say uh, with budget constraints, if you're by yourself, uh, absolutely consider not being by yourself anymore. So build a virtual team, build a a team of security champions to help support you and again those initial planting the seed stuff that you do will be super important that's fantastic actually we may circle back to that security champions topic in a bit because i saw another question come in um, but before we do that bruce from you what what kind of things I might you suggest really for jordan when you read uh, jordan's question and, and uh, mentioned that inheritance and the, the general feeling is inheritance is obviously it's a horrible situation that stems to something <laughs> that you generally think is, pos is a positive thing isn't it it's like okay this is great we've got an inheritance but i this is your opportunity just like when you start and you you go for an interview for a job for education and awareness or, or somebody turns around and said we need you to education awareness. This is your opportunity to stamp your, your vision on what that should be. If you don't take the opportunity, okay, then what you're doing is inheriting what somebody else has come up with and thought that they would be okay with. And, and if, if it doesn't produce the results, then the person that's inherited it is going to be the person that's going to be held responsible for it. So I think this is by far the best opportunity to say, I'd love to have this job, but these are the conditions, okay? And one of those conditions needs to be, I heard the phrase education and awareness. And this goes back to Janan's point, but actually, do you want education and awareness? What is the business case for this, okay? Because as security professionals, data protection professionals, when we heard the phrase education and awareness, I think what we all want is behavior and culture. I mean, you know, um, th this whole, whole event is security, awareness, behavior and culture. Now, education and awareness, okay, isn't behavior and culture. Okay, it may be a constituent part that helps you move towards influencing behavior and, and developing an organizational culture where security is value. But in and on its own, it's not likely to bring around the sort of changes that ideally you want. So my recommendation would be go back and really understand from the stakeholders, what are the business objectives? Now, um, you know, I, I, mean, I think it's really interesting because when I do this type of work and people talk, well, we want to bring around behavioral change in line with our policies. And then you go, okay, so we have an awareness campaign. And actually there's something called the Ebbinghaus curve. And the Ebbinghaus curve is a piece of research which goes back well over a century and it's about how quickly we get things. So I can make people aware, but I can pretty much guarantee that within two weeks, they've forgotten about 98% of what I've made them aware of. And this is really interesting because when we talk about having a campaign in October and generally to leverage all the other security awareness national campaigns that are going on, most of it's forgotten. And this is why Janan's point is really important, which is you've got to continually drive programs and awareness and efforts to influence behavior throughout the whole of the year. Absolutely. So um, my recommendation is, I mean, I think what Janan said about uh, you know, what you need to do to sort of uh, in terms of 
know, strategy than tactics. But for me, my absolute recommendation to you is take this opportunity to define your own vision and get and getting the buy-in so that it becomes the vision of the organization. Because this is what you're going to have to be happy doing for the whole of the period of time that you are responsible for education awareness. If you and the best way to be happy in your work and therefore be most productive is to actually have the vision that you have been part of setting, not something that you have inherited for somebody else. Because I, I'm confident of this, if you're the only person, and even if you get another person to help you, okay, it's hard work. It's incredibly hard work. Um, and so I think you need to, um, I'm not sure who that is. Sorry. Um, and so I think it's really important right at the beginning, ask the business, help it, facilitate a discussion, which is about defining its real objectives, because the objectives are behavior and culture, and there's some very good reasons for doing that, then that defines a certain course of action. If the board generally only wants education and awareness, which means they're probably focused upon compliance, okay, that tells you who you're working for. It tells you what you can expect. It tells you what realistically you're going to be able to deliver. Very good. So we have about five minutes left, believe it or not. Um, I'd like to get to through two more questions if we could. Um, this one actually I alluded to, um, which is from Chandra, because it goes back to the point you had mentioned, Janine, about building a champion network. And Chandra was wondering, um, she actually, she saw your keynote. She said she really enjoyed this morning's talk. She mentioned that toward the end of your keynote, you talked about building that champions network. Can you talk more specifically about what traits or abilities I should look for when recruiting employees as champions? So let's do this one as a lightning round, if we could. Oh, <laughs> you've known me for how long? You know, I can't do lightning. <laughs> okay, let's do this quickly. You want them to be number one. So something that Bruce alluded to, uh, passion. They need to be passionate about security. They need to have some kind of an, um, an interest in it. You would want them to be an influencer in your organization or the business unit because ultimately their job is going to be, uh, you know, your influence, your champion. So you do want somebody with those uh, influencing skills, ideally creative. So somebody who will supplement, uh, you know, I'm not really sure how creative you are, but the more creativity, the better in this field, I'll say good at building relationships, interpersonal skills, um, friendly, and you'd probably want to hope that they're looking for professional development opportunities. A lot of people right now rightly want to get into cybersecurity. We want to welcome everybody to cybersecurity because Lord knows what we've got currently is not 100% working. So, you know, look for people who are looking for professional development opportunities um, and, and they have skills in something. As your security champions program matures, you know, initially you might just want them to help you out with getting creative or pushing out um, some messages, but eventually you're going to want them to get a little bit more specific and have more specific skills such as uh, facilitating workshops or um, creating some designs or writing content. So specificity and skills. Was that lightning enough? That was super lightning. I appreciate Thank that. You. <laughs> Bruce, anything you you care to add to that? 
Um, I'm not sure. I, I think that's really. I think that's a really good list of um, attributes that you need to find in a person. I think, but it's all aligned to what is the actual objective of the uh, ambassador network, and it can be, it can be different things. And I think you just have to be cognizant of the fact that ambassador networks have been used in a variety of different fields, you know, health and safety, yeah. for example, and, and lots of others. But different culturally, I think there's a really interesting point here culturally. Um, having one person that's maybe an ambassador um, might seem to might, might actually clash with cultural values within within the different uh, different countries. You know, in a caste system, um, there will be a, a hierarchical structure in terms of information flows and how people respect and respond to those individuals. And actually, caste systems are pretty are, are, are sort of prevalent around certain parts of. of the world and so I think another, another consideration to take when you're developing that cultural uh, ambassador network is what are the cultures that we're going to be operating in and how well do they respond to that sort of hierarchy type of uh, approach. Oh, very good yeah that's actually important to think about for some of our multinational organizations that are Great. tuning in today. Um, there's actually this question, and, and thank you, Marcus, for this one, because this is actually the perfect question, I think, to end on today. Um, Marcus is wondering, from all the security awareness and training programs you've seen, what is the one thing we could all be doing better? Oh. Nice one, Marcus. What a good, what a good closing. I think the, okay. the one the one thing that we can do better is to put ourselves in the shoes of the people who are receiving whatever it is that we're giving them. I think empathy is the one thing that we can do better. And I think we can get more and more and more empathetic. We can ask people what they need. We can anticipate what they need. We can you know, really, and you can do that in every single thing that you do. You can do it in the messages that you send out to people. You can do it in understanding how much or how little they want you to approach them. I just think empathy is probably one of life's most underestimated skills right now. So I think that's um, absolutely my my one thing that I've seen. One thing from you, Bruce? Um, so I'm going to maybe push the boundaries a little bit on this one. Um, most of what we do in terms of education awareness is education pe educating people around policies and process and procedures and our expectations of them. Um, but as, as a spin out of my research was actually how we could really shift the uh, the thumb under in terms of going in the right direction, not by improving what we're doing in terms of education and awareness campaigns, though there's clearly an argument for that. It's about designing better security. So um, we rely upon communication and education to drive changes in behavior around policies, processes, and procedures. Okay, but that's actually full of lots of issues which we've been talking about at this event. But actually, if you design security in terms of policies, process and procedures with an understanding of how humans, what it means to be human, how behaviors are formed and influenced, how we can increase the likelihood that somebody's going to comply with something. Then actually what you're doing is you're tackling the root cause of the problem. Rather than trying to push people through the door to comply. Now, in my view, 
you design better security and you do better education and awareness campaigns. And when you do both, you achieve far greater results. And, and I've seen that working with, uh, with, with large organizations, 100,000 plus, and with small 30 employee organizations. If you make security a good product that people want to buy, and when they experience it, they love it, okay, they'll want to come back again and buy that security product off you. Thanks for checking out our Ask Us Anything session with Jinan, Bruce, and Kristen. Join us tomorrow for our next episode, Influencing Security Mindsets and Culture, featuring Donna Gomez, Security Risk and Compliance Analyst for Johnson County Government in the state of Kansas, and Tom Larson, Cybersecurity Awareness Lead at the Idaho National Laboratory. Cyberwork with InfoSec is produced weekly by InfoSec. The show is for cybersecurity professionals and those who wish to enter the cybersecurity field. New episodes of Cyberwork are released every Monday on our YouTube channel and at all the places where you like to get podcasts. To claim one free month of our InfoSec Skills platform, please visit infosecinstitute.com skills and enter the promo code CYBERWORK for a free month of security courses, hands-on cyber ranges, skills assessments, and certification practice exams for you to try. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you back here tomorrow for more cyber work. Bye for now. How about some free cybersecurity training resources for you and your team? Just go to infosecinstitute.com slash free to get ebooks, training guides, and more than 100 cybersecurity training courses, all free for cyber work listeners. Go to infosecinstitute.com slash free and start learning crucial new skills today.